Welcome to the show, folks. This is Wrestling Changed My Life. Here we go. I filled up more passports. I've been all over the world. And what you find is the things that drive people as a family and a country, they're the same. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. Now, if I look back at my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gents, happy Friday from the Windy City. Coming to you a little bit late this week with our second episode. But nonetheless, it's here. We have Bruce Burnett, one of the great coaches of the past uh, 30 years or so. Bruce has coached at four Olympic Games. He was the head coach at Navy for many years. He was the head uh, coach of Team USA Freestyle for many years. But back in 1987 through 1990, he coached at Oklahoma State, and he had a chance to be around the great John Smith, the great Pat Smith, Kenny Monday, and I really had a fun time hearing about all these stories. So I hope you enjoy it, folks. Fan of the week goes to my man Nick George, who just had a son yesterday, and Nick brought a Wrestling Changed My Life t-shirt to the hospital to put in the baby's crib. I'm speechless. So Nick George, thank you, my brother. Wish you nothing but the best. Folks, if you want to support the podcast, please go to our online store. That's store.wrestlingchangemylife.com. I sound like a broken record, but you know what's there. The goods. You got the crew neck. It's crew neck season here in Chicago. T-shirts, hoodies. If you want to support the show, that's where you can go. Store.wrestlingchangemylife.com. And without further ado, folks, let me bring you Bruce Burnett. How did you first find wrestling back at North Bakersfield? Well, actually, uh, my high school coach recruited me into the wrestling room. And uh, honestly, I saw a guy wearing a Letterman's jacket. And I thought to myself, oh, man, I'd like to get one of those Letterman's jackets as a freshman weighing about 100 pounds and thought, you know, I could take that jacket from that guy and found out he was a wrestler. And the rest is history. You know, the wrestling coach got me and really got me to like the sport, took me around and took care of me and uh, helped me get through high school, actually. What kind of kid were you before that? Were you kind of a, a ruffian? Were you a straight edge kid? <laughs> I'm going to say uh, I probably missed a lot of school. Uh, I did like to surf a little bit, did like to fish a little bit, did like to do a lot of other things that didn't involve the the classroom, I would say. So uh, but I love sports, football, wrestling, and baseball. So 
sometimes you have to do things you don't want to do to get things you want. And you wanted to, to wrestle and participate in sports. So back, and a lot of people don't know this, but you know, the California junior college system has its own state tournament and runs in the fall. It's a pretty cool thing. How did you end up going there versus um, some of the more traditional four-year schools? Well, a lot of it really had to do with my academics. So uh, I did miss a lot of school. Uh, I was recruited by UCLA and Cal Poly and uh, Fresno State. So the local schools were interested, but, um, you know, I just gotten married. I got married right out of high school and uh, easier to stay at home and, and progress from there. And, and it really turned out really good for me. Uh, God opened up a lot of doors. That's what I'll say. How do you mean? I mean, uh, my whole career is pretty much divine intervention. You know, I didn't, uh, I didn't apply for any of the jobs I had as a high school coach or a collegiate coach or the national coach. Um, those opportunities came knocking on my door and, uh, I, I opened some of them and walked through the door. So, uh, yeah, no, no applications for sure. Wow. That's pretty cool. I mean, that just shows you relationships and doing the right thing, uh, are pretty much, pretty much everything in this life. Yeah. I'm going to say actually it's divine intervention. Um, when I was a high school, high school coach at Meridian, Idaho, uh, and we'd been fairly successful and our high school was going to split. And, uh, I was, actually going to retire from being the head wrestling coach, uh, become the head golf, golf coach, head of the PE department, and be semi-retired and let my two assistants go to the other two high schools and uh, be the head coaches. And I did a clinic that spring in Lewiston, Idaho. And uh, Myron Roderick, the athletic director at Oklahoma State University, was also doing the clinic. And... Um, Two days into the clinic, he said, Bruce, how'd you like to be the head assistant wrestling coach at Oklahoma State University? And I said, wow, really? He goes, yep, Leroy Smith's going to Switzerland, going to be their national coach or something. Job's going to open up. And how'd you like to come down there and be the head assistant at Oklahoma State? And I said, wow, what's that paying? He said, $20,000 a year. I said, Byron, $20,000 a year? I make forty-five dollars now as a high school coach. I couldn't do that to my family. And he said, oh, I'll give you a car, gas credit card. You can do camps. He said, you'll, you'll make more money than that. And I said, oh, Myron, I just can't do it. And, and actually, we left it that way. And Went back to school, and our head football coach was really a good guy by the name of Bob O'Mara. I was telling him the story, and he goes, you know what, Bruce? If the University of Oklahoma offered me a, a job on their coaching staff, I'd pay them $20,000 a year just to get on staff. And I said, well, you know, maybe I'd have looked into it a little more. And I called Myron and asked if he would fly me down, look at the job. He said, yep. And again, the rest is history. How, Stepped this, in the door as a Oklahoma State cowboy. This just shows the uh, the personality of Myron Roderick in the sense that not many people would hire a head associate without the head coach being involved with that process. You know. Yeah, and uh, honestly, I knew Joe, and uh, 
I had told Myron that I knew Joe. I mean, when Joe was training and a wrestling coach, head wrestling coach at South Bakersfield High School, and he was training for the world team, he would call me and a couple other high school wrestlers that were pretty good in the Bakersfield area. And uh, we were his workout partners. And so early on, I mean, when I first was doing the clinic with Myron, I let him know that I did know Joe. Uh, but I didn't talk to Joe until after after uh, the time with Myron. Myron seems like a, an interesting guy to work for. Um, you know, the when Chesbro left in 84, it still kind of puzzles the mind how that all transpired. Um, how, how would you describe Joe C for folks who don't know him in terms of his coaching philosophy and his approach to the sport? Well, Joe was pretty open in terms of uh, letting people progress at their weight uh, their own time, their own abilities. But Joe was very intense, fierce competitor, really a nice guy, would do absolutely anything for you. Uh, but when you got in the arena, when it was time to fight, he was a fighter. I mean, he was a tough guy to say no to, so a fierce recruiter. Uh, but he was a tough guy. I mean, he really was. And uh, But he also knew what his skill sets were and he allowed assistants, I think, to um, use their skills. And, and he was never intimidated by anybody else doing anything. And so, um, yeah, he is a good man. And, and he did really care about his wrestlers a great deal. That's the one thing about him in the sense that he, he allowed other guys to coach. You know, a lot of great coaches are such control freaks that – in a good way. Like you think about Bill Belichick, probably the biggest control freak of all time. And he really runs the show from top to bottom. He's pulling all the strings. Joe C did not seem like that kind of guy in the sense that a lot of people would run practice sometimes for weeks at a time without Joe even being there or even, you know, coaching the practice. Is that, is that what you remember? Uh, yeah, I'm going to say Joe was there most of the time, but, okay. uh, when I first started, when I first got to Oklahoma state, 1987, uh, Myron Roderick was, uh, he would drift into the room as the athletic director, but Tommy Chesbro actually got back on staff. And so when I first got there, it was, uh, Josie, uh, myself as a head assistant, uh, Tommy Chesbro became the assistant and he was going to be in the room if Todd was going to come to Oklahoma state, which Todd did. And then, uh, Mike Sheets and Kenny Monday were on staff. And so uh, that's how it started off. Uh, Jim Shields was actually the equipment guy, but he also uh, helped in the wrestling room as well. And so we had a huge staff, but as you can imagine, I was a high school coach walking into a room where John Smith had already won his first world title and uh, Tommy Chesbro was in the room and Kenny Monday and, and Mike Sheets and, and there I was high school coach walking into the Oklahoma state office and going to work. How did you, how did you manage self-doubt if you had any? Well, I'm not going to say it was self-doubt, but I did keep my mouth shut for about three or four weeks. Um, but everything's a learning curve. And Tommy Chesbro was a great technician, really a great technician. What was funny was, obviously, and this was one of the problems I tried to address when I became national developmental coach, terminology in one part of the country is not the same as it is in 
another part of the country. You know, it's either a headlock or a head and arm or a cowboy. <laughs> you know, they just called things, they were different names. And so uh, there was a learning curve to get over that part of it. But um, technically, I, I paid attention and I learned a lot. I learned a lot from Tommy Chesbro. Mm. Uh, but after about a month or so of being in that environment, um, I thought I did see what the, we had great athletes. We had Chris Barnes and Kendall Cross and, and Corey Bays. I mean, we, we had some really good athletes and Kirk Mammon, but honestly, uh, they couldn't clear a tie up. There were some basic things that uh, really, really had to come into play. And so I felt like the conditioning and clearing and controlling tie-ups, I mean, it's pretty easy to, uh, to take down an Iowa wrestler the first minute maybe, you know, when you're fresh and you're slick. But after five minutes or six minutes of somebody pulling on your head and you're trying to hit the same shot, it's just not as effective. And so – learning how to control tie-ups and, and getting in better shape and match preparation. And, and uh, what, what I'll say is Tommy, after about a month uh, of running practice in his cowboy boots and his jeans, you know, what a great guy, <laughs> but brilliant. And, uh, but I went in and I said, Tommy, you know, I'm going to run practice here for a few days. And he come in and watch and, and uh, he let me do that. And so him and Joe both, I mean, they, they talk, but he let me run practice for a week. And then after two weeks, he stopped coming in the room. And I was like, I'd go to his office, say, Tommy, you know, get, come on back in the room. I, I want your input. I want your, he goes, no, you're doing good. Things are, things are going well. Uh, but he would come in and, and check things out. And, and there you go. That, That's and then, how Bruce, Bruce Burnett got in the wrestling room. Man, and uh, just the, the, the talent level in that Oklahoma State room at that time, you, you alluded to it earlier, incredible when you consider the postgrads. Um, tell me about the perception of John Smith coming into the room your first day of practice in 87. Well, obviously, John had already won his first world title. And so, I mean, I, you think to yourself, you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to help this guy, <laughs> you know? And honestly, I learned probably way more from John than John ever learned from me in, in terms of wrestling. Um, but I was a wrestling sponge. And so I got around John and, and wrestled with John a lot. I, I, pretty regular. And John, the one thing about John, he didn't miss a workout. And even after he graduated, I mean, practice was practice in, in the college wrestling room, right? So he's there every day or two times a day. We'd drill in the morning and lift. And I mean, there's no secrets on what you have to do to really be successful. Uh, but John wouldn't miss. And it, it, more than once, it might be nine o'clock at night and I'd get a call and John had, this would be in the spring and John would say, coach, I had to go to Tulsa and do a clinic, so I missed my workout today. Uh, do you think we get a little workout in? It's nine o'clock at night. I'm getting ready for bed, you know, and he's he's calling me to to come down and get a workout in. And um, he, but that's the type of guy he was. He wasn't going to miss his workouts. He wasn't going to get a, miss an opportunity to get better. And so uh, 
there was a lot of lot of learning. That's that's what I'll say. How far along had the low single been perfected and developed at this point in time? Well, it, you just didn't see it much, and so honestly, John Smith was a low single leg, and, but John's finishes. Uh, that's what really made him good at it. First is, I mean, if you look at his body type, his speed, his flexibility. Um, so the low single leg and the way he was able to finish, those things became very important for you, for him. And uh, I had to learn that. And, but at the same time, gosh, I had access to so much uh, that I never had as a high school coach, video, uh, be around the very best wrestlers. It's not like today when you could go online and you can find any technique you really want online today. Mm-hmm. And you can watch any wrestler in his prime or in his, you know, and, uh, and I, honestly, I learned the counter to a low single leg of going over the top actually from a North Korean mm. did it to John. And that's how I learned it. You know, somebody finally countered it a little bit. And uh, the guy was pretty good with it coming over the top. But um, yeah, you know, wrestling evolves. Wrestling's a, a constant progression, and and you see a lot of the techniques evolve, and and everything grows. And uh, that's that's why I would tell elite athletes, look, you you can only learn if you choose to learn. And some people get stuck in in this little ball of, you know, I've I've done this. This is what I do, and I'm really good at it. Mm-hmm. And they, they better keep getting better. You have to keep getting better in this sport of wrestling if you want to really be successful. And that's as a coach or an athlete, uh, constant growth, constant growth. How did John Smith embody that? Was he someone you constantly saw improving? Oh, yeah. I can promise you this. John Smith got better at something every year. He wasn't the same guy from a world championship to a world championship to an Olympics he got better. He got better on top, or he got better on the bottom, or he got better with his uh, takedown techniques. The one thing people don't, they forget about John Smith. John Smith didn't get scored on very often. He had great hips. Him and Pat both had great hips. Uh, Leroy, I mean, uh, Leroy Sr. and mom did a good job because they had actually incredible hips, and they were hard to score on hard to score on flexible uh powerful hips and his counter offense was good but but at the same time john got a little better at at something every year every year he was better on top or his top game got incredible at the end there yeah he worked hard on it i i think probably had some influences you know dave schultz is was a beast as, as Dave was getting older, everybody understood that maybe he's not as good on his feet, but man, if he gets you down on the mat, you better be ready. And that progression, I think, uh, John, he's observant. He wants to, wanted to be the best and worked at being the best. And so he studied, watched people, uh, how they progress and score. And, and he just got better every year. And now you talk about good hips. A guy who comes to mind with maybe the best hips of all time, Randy Lewis, 1988, John and Randy. I just got chill saying it because I love this matchup. John and Randy meet, uh, you know, a number of times in the spring of 88. Before we get to the matchups, you know, what did Randy Lewis represent as a competitive threat 
to John in the 88 quad? Well, I, I mean, everybody can look at the history and, and Randy and Iowa and Oklahoma State and, and all those variables, but that's irrelevant. What it was was somebody was in John's way in terms of making the Olympic team and being the best he can be. And, uh, and, I, and I think John did lose in the, in the spring of 88 uh, at the national tournament. I think it was called the national tournament then, a long time ago. But I can tell you this, I know Dave Bennett really well and uh, worked with Dave Bennett a long time in, in putting our video together on the national team. And, but that night, John, John, you, you didn't have to look for John to get him to come watch video of his matches. John went to Dave Bennett that night, said, let's watch this. Let's find out. And uh, after he did, he basically told Dave, he said, that'll never happen again. And it didn't, you know. Uh, student of the sport, uh, hated to lose and and worked at getting better so that it didn't happen again. I mean, it's that, and honestly, that's what separated him, even in, on the elite level in terms of, uh, he was a self-motivator and he studied the sport and he understood that uh, if he got beat, he wanted to know the reason why he got beat and how he could fix the problem. Mm. And, and so many athletes today don't, don't go about fixing the problem. That's, that's why a guy like me can be successful in this sport. It's not rocket science. You know, how did you get beat? Well, the guy scored more points than you. Well, I didn't sleep good. I don't care. He still scored more points than you. How did he score the points? Find out how he scored the points. Stop him from scoring the points next time. How did you score on him? Oh, you didn't? Well, let's figure out a way to, to score on him. I mean, it's, that's the process and you, right. and you have to go about fixing the process every time because again, it's evolution and everything's constantly moving and you have to get, you just have to keep getting better. And that's how, you know, John, I've interviewed him twice for this documentary. He's, he said that, you know, when he came off the mat, he knew why he lost 99% of the time. Um, and that match in Topeka that you're alluding to, you know, John did come up her body, the one time the match, Randy threw him for three, and Randy ended up winning that match. Um, and so it's just, you know, it's just such a small world that in 84, you know, Randy and Leroy were going at it at the same weight. And then in 88, for John to get to kind of get to get his first Olympic berth, he had uh, to vanquish one of his brother's, you know, big rivals. Yeah, but uh, again, I think it was anybody that gets in the way of of somebody achieving what they're, they're on a mission to do and make no mistakes about it. John was on a mission. And now I'll tell you a, a little story about 1992. Uh, I was a statistics guy. And so I knew John had only wrestled like 12 or 13 times leading up to the 92 Olympics in, in the entire year. Uh, clinics, uh, training so many things uh at the time and and i just asked john before he was getting ready to go you know john are you are you ready are you ready to win and john looked at me and he said you know what bruce i'm gonna win it may not be pretty but i'm gonna win and honestly it wasn't pretty 
but he won. And uh, he did it the hard way. (laughs) That 92 games, those first two matches came out in the last 10 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, honestly, um, I think the the lack of matches maybe impacted his his, uh, game on. But you talk about in a pinch. And then, of course, Reynoso, when he was, uh, okay, I'm going to give you a story. Here's some pressure. So this is my first Olympics, 1992. I didn't make it over the 88 Olympics. Somebody had to stay back at Oklahoma State and work. And uh, so we're in the corner. Leroy and I are in the corner with John. And they have this flurry and something happens and they go out of bounds. And this is late in the match. And John goes out of bounds by our corner. And he looks at Leroy and I and he says, if I lose this match, am I still in the gold medal match? Right there, during the match, in our corner. And I knew the scenario. I knew it. I mean, you, that's the stuff you do as a coach. You knew that if he didn't get pinned or tech falled, he's going to be in the finals even if he loses the match. Well, when somebody looks at you right there at that instant during the match and asks you that question, and Leroy looks at me, and I, I'm like, yes, you're still in, but go win this match. And uh, he goes back in. He gets crotch lift. Reynoso was good at it. And then the rest is history. He comes back and win. But I about broke out in the cold sweat. And that's truth. You know, like, what if I got this wrong? <laughs> you know? Pretty big deal, you know. Oh my, my first God. Olympics. Yeah. How do you think going into that match, you know, and, and I do want to talk about John's first two matches with Reynoso back in 90, but going into that match, do you think that impacted John's openness in terms of how he wrestled, knowing that he just couldn't get pinned? I don't think John even paid attention to that going into the match. John just went to wrestle the match. Uh, I don't remember ever talking to him about, you know, don't get pinned, uh, don't get tech falls, you're going to win. Um, but obviously, it came to John's mindset during the match. And, and so I think he knew, but he wanted confirmation. And there was no way he's going to get pinned or tech falls, you know. And, but he took, he's the one who took the chance to score. And Reynoso got over the top on him and he did, did the same thing when they were in Cuba. So Reynoso was really good, really good with that crotch left. And were you in Cuba so, the first time you got beat? I was, I was, I happened to be there on that trip with him. So thank you uh, to the wrestling gods. Tell me about what every member you have of that situation. Cause not many people were there. Well, I honestly, so here's the deal with Cuba. First off, the time of the year that wrestlers go down there, usually it's cold at home and they get to go to Cuba. And I hate to tell this really, but I'm going to say 60, 70% of those guys that go down there are pretty big on buying some cigars and bringing them back. And, and so it's not the most difficult of all the, the international tours that you can take. That's what I'll say. You know that, I think Italy would be there and Canada was at the tournament, but really you went down there to wrestle the Cubans because they were the toughest ones in the group. <clears throat> and so 
it, it wasn't the toughest of tournaments. That's what I was going to say. So I don't think the mindset going down put them in the frame of mind that how important it really is. Now, obviously, they go down there and they want to win. But at the same time, um, it, it's not like going to Kresniarsk or Tbilisi or, or one of those other tournaments where every time, everything that you do is hard. <laughs> I mean, honestly, we were pretty concerned about whether or not we were going to get lobster after the matches, you know, the guys selling lobster on the beach. And so it, it was just a different mindset. But uh, uh, we were surprised. I was surprised by Reynoso. I didn't know he was that good. And, uh, and John was surprised. And so he, he knew. I, I can't even remember how many times he actually ended up wrestling Reynoso, but it was a pretty big deal every time. I mean, it was a battle. Yeah, they wrestled, I, I count four times, um, the Pan Ams, uh, the Grands. Yeah. The, so 90, um, just to kind of pull the curtain back, of the documentary, 1990 is a season we key in on because John's first match of 90, or first tournament of 90, he gets beat by Reynoso. And he kind of has this, this period of like a week or two where he's doubting, is he going to even wrestle in 92, right? Does he still have it? And he decides to commit to it. He wins the 90 Worlds in Tokyo, and then he beats Reynoso at the Grands, and then he's back on. You know, he's, he's committed to 92. Um, did you ever have a doubt that John would wrestle through the next quad? You mean through 92? Yeah. Uh, honestly, I didn't. I mean, my concern was I watched him train 87, 88, 89, 90, you know, and he had a lot of other things on his plate. And I think he got this. First off, you live pretty meagerly, you know, as an elite athlete, especially back then, you know. And so, and all of a sudden, he's able to make some money and do some things uh, that he wasn't able to do before. I think that that draw hurt him a little bit. And, uh, and I think he made the effort, actually, to, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to doing what it takes to really be good. And, and he did. He didn't need anybody to tell him that, right? I mean, he was, when it, once he set his mind and he knew he was going to do it, he was all on board about going about and doing it. And, and he, he worked hard. He would never be out conditioned. He just, he just wouldn't allow it to happen. Uh, technically, obviously, he's as good as anybody in the world. And in and, and top, bottom, his counter offense, his, his whole game was, was really good. But the one thing people forget is the rest of the world is really good, really good. And, you know, there's four or five people in the world on any given day can beat our best guys. It's just the way it is. And if you don't, if you're not up to your game, if your preparation isn't right, if your study isn't right, if you... Uh, get caught up in the, the hype and the, all the other things versus getting back down and focus on what it is that you really have to do to, to take out the bad guys. Uh, you get caught. And I've, I've coached four Olympics. I've seen it on different levels. And it's heartbreaking. It, I mean, it really is to watch somebody get to, uh, 
a certain point and make a mistake because uh, they get caught up in the hype or they miss their training or they, they're not focused in on the thing. And uh, you never had to worry about John in that, in that sense. He was on a mission and uh, he was going to take care of business. Yeah. It was always take care of business first. And in the 90 worlds in Tokyo, John teched everybody. Um, but coming out of it, he still felt that he had some unanswered business because Reynoso held that win over him. How do you remember the match at the Grants going in Pittsburgh that year, if you were there? Hmm. You know what, Ryan? Uh, I, I don't remember the match. So uh, I know this. I know Reynoso was, was really confident, especially after the match in Cuba. And, uh, of course, their whole country was pretty excited about what took place down there. And it put Reynoso on a different stage, I think, on the world level as well. But uh, Reynoso was no, no slouch on the rest of the world. I mean, he was really good. And so, uh, but I think the matchup too, you know, what his skill set was versus what John's skill set was and what he did. And I mean, it's pretty hard to lift those hips. Uh, but Reynoso's flexibility and uh, what his best skill sets were versus what skills sets John were, you know, so I don't know. It's just a matchup and, and Reynoso had a good crotch lift and John to shoot that low single and, and, you know, he got lifted a couple of times and that, that was basically the matches. And then, you know, after that kind of rebound where he refocuses himself, he wins again at 91 and then John is named the co-head coach. How much how much did that play into John's distraction heading into the 92 Olympic trials, having to coach at the same time? Uh, well, I, I think clearly it, it impacted him. Um, you know, I left in 1990 to become the national developmental coach uh, for USA Wrestling. And so um, I wasn't around him on a daily basis like I was prior to that through 87, 88, 88, 89, uh, 89, 90. Uh, and so watching him train, but, but that's how I got back to the question about, you know, are you ready? Are you, you know, he goes, yeah, I'm going to win. It just may not be as pretty, <laughs> you know, and, and that, and that's what happened, you know, but, I was actually, uh, honestly, on the Greco staff and the freestyle staff in 1992. Um, so my wow. first Olympics and, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was a big step, you know. I mean, you go from a high school coach to uh, head assistant at Oklahoma State to national developmental coach to national coach. It, uh, it was quite the journey. <laughs> I was going to say, if someone would have told you August 1, 1987, that in five years you're going to be the head Olympic coach, you probably would have said, you're crazy. <laughs> well, something like that, except, uh, you know, God opened up doors. I can't, I can't talk about divine inter intervention any more than that, you know. And uh, with all the opportunities that I had and the people that I was around and the things that I was able to learn. And look – the, the interesting part about this, I, I got to work with John Smith. I got to be in the room with him and wrestle with him and touch him. And, and I, I'm going to tell you another story. So because I wrestle with John a lot, 
as one of his workout partners, but uh, I told Mike Sheets one day, I said, you know, I, I think I'm going to really try to beat John today in a match. He wants to go three or four matches today. And I think I'm going to try to, I'm going to really try to win. And that dog got Mike Sheets went and told John and John beat me like a drum. <laughs> and I, I looked over in the corner and I saw Mike Sheets just smiling. You know, I don't think John had ever beaten me that bad, but boy, he, I think Mike told him and uh, I really took a beat down on that, on that day. But uh, John could do that. He could turn it up and turn it on, you know, and, and everybody, you know, Dave Schultz was, uh, I mean, he was a beast on top. Dave would hurt you. I mean, he'd get that turn. And John was pretty ruthless, too. John would put the hurt to you if he thought it'd get you to turn over a little bit. But, no, it, it was, uh, it was, there's probably 10,000, well, not 10,000, but 1,000 coaches out there that, given the opportunity I had, probably would have known more, but but they didn't have the opportunity. When you start looking at the 80s and 90s, you just didn't have the video. I mean, when I traveled the world to scout all the people, I traveled carrying a, a video case and three cameras, you know, one for each mat, and set them up. And I mean, who? first off, how often do you see North Korea? You don't see them. You got to go, you got to go to the Asian games. You want to see the North Koreans. And, they have to qualify for the Olympics because you don't see them in the worlds. And, uh, and you don't want to be surprised by somebody that's really good out there that you're not prepared for. And so back then you had to carry a video camera around and go to the Asian championships, wherever they were at, middle, middle China, you know, to, to watch the North Koreans compete. And, and so that's what wrestling was I was able to do was traveling. And you do would that. do that? You'd go to those Asian games? Oh, yeah. Yep. I would go to everything, everything. And I would go, look, first off, uh, Fudzayev in, in 96, I saw him working out in the practice room. Now, I'd seen him the spring before, 200 pounds and, and not taking care of his body to – eight months later in the wrestling room, wrestling to beat the band. And I, I, I went back and I, I think Joe C was with me at the time actually. And I told him, I said, Hey, he's going to compete in the 96 Olympics. I don't know who is he going to wrestle for, but I'm telling you right now, he's going to compete. And so started paying a little more attention to Arsene Fazayev. And sure enough, he wrestled for Uzbekistan then. So I would go to the practice rooms and see who was cutting weight hard who who was working out, who looked good, who wasn't, you know, I, I tried to get there early and take in all I could. And knowledge is a good thing, right? Especially when the little things can really make a difference in a big match. And so, yeah, I got to travel around the world and go watch video and had a whole bunch of those big old thick VHS tapes. Man, what a what a cool thing to do that. And you talk about watching the North Korean, and we alluded to it earlier. I think I don't know if it was John's first or second match. The Korean came out lower than I've ever seen anyone wrestle, like lower than John even. Um, so how did I mean, what did you pick up on some of those films to help John prepare for that? 
that crotch lift that he threw on him. Well, uh, we John did a really good job in his preparation by himself. And uh, of course, Leroy was helping him a great deal too. So uh, in his preparation for the crotch lift and stuff, and, and if you go back and you really watch John's technique evolve and what he did with his hips and if a guy got in a crotch lift position and setting out and then being able to set through and post lift, I mean, he created some different finishes for those, those situations, but uh, you know, there's enough can't be said about situational training. That's what I'll say. And so putting yourself in a position where uh, somebody has a good crotch lift with you and how do you counter that? And if, where do you put your head? Where do your hips go? What do you, um, it's, it's a constant evolution. And, and John was really good at that, by the way. Uh, and I, honestly, I'd love to study that as well, too. You know, I mean, this is a position you got beat in. How do you fix the position? What, what, are, what are some options? What can we do? How do, you, how do you beat this position so that you prepare the next time? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you didn't have to tell John to do that. He was going to do it. He's going to watch the video and solve some problems. What about after, uh, let's go to the trials, John Fisher. I mean, I'm sure you were there. It's kind of a junior question, but what happened in those three matches? What do you remember from those? Uh, you know what, Ryan? I'm having a hard time bringing them back because what? here's the end result. John wins, <laughs> <laughs> you know, at the end. But Fisher was a beast. It wasn't like John Fisher wasn't, uh, wasn't good. I mean, he was good on the NCAA level and international level. And uh, we just had a whole bunch of really good wrestlers. And, and John... You know, he lost one match, but it's like, look, it was just really hard to hold John down. When he set his mind to do something and uh, if he got beat, he'd come back in with a vengeance. He'd chase him down. <laughs> he'd go, you know what? I, I suspect if he could, he'd go to the practice room and, and try to wrestle him for an hour if he could. Uh, just to learn and progress and get better. And so, but that's what, that's what you have to do. I mean, uh, he's, he didn't lose many times on the big stage. You know, he was, he was definitely the man. And if you think about during this whole time, Pat was also coming up um, and you, so did you coach through the 90 season Pat's first title? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, interesting, right? I mean, we've got Jeff McCallis, who I think was ranked fifth in the deal. But honestly, uh, Pat wanted to wrestle. His family wanted him to wrestle. And uh, I can remember the wrestle-offs with Jeff, and, and there was no question, no question. I think 7-2 to was probably the closest match uh, between Pat and, and Jeff. Uh, but at the same time, you know, Joe was pretty good about this, you know, he gave, uh, gave a chance, gave Jeff a chance to compete in the NCAA tournament and let him go transfer to another school at Christmas time. And, and so we get, had to get all that stuff done early. Right. I mean, in that interim of, uh, you know, Pat, if we are going to do this, we got to make it happen. Let's get the Russell offs. Let's get it done. Uh, 
get regular officials. I mean, get them in, uh, set the mat out in Gallagher-Iba, everything. It's not done in the wrestling room like, like a lot of programs. I mean, you put the match out, mat out on the Gallagher-Iba floor, uh, had officials come in and officiate the wrestle-offs, and uh, there was no question that Pat was, was able and, and capable. That's what I'll say. I mean, there, there really was no question as to whether or not he was capable of winning yeah, even in his freshman year. That was none in my mind anyway. And even even though we go out to Portland and he gets he gets pinned, again, you solve the problems. You just fix the problems, you know. You I mean Dan Russell was pretty doggone good. <laughs> you know? Really it's good. Not, yeah. It's not like, you know, he went out and he's he's not very, you know, Pat just loses. Well, he lost to a really good guy. He got caught and he got pinned. And, and uh, you, you know, how do we address that? He's our guy. Let's go to work. Let's, let's get better. Let's fix the problem. Let's get better every day. Let's do something that makes you a little bit better so that doesn't happen the next time. And, um, gosh, I was uh, – obviously, I left in 1990, but what an opportunity to watch Pat grow and, and win year after year after year. And then actually I had him on a couple of international tours when I was national coach. Uh, always fun, great personality, always has that smile, you know. <laughs> Pat always, always could lighten up a room. So, But when he got on the mat, he was pretty doggone intense. I was just going to ask you, how would you describe his progression and change from his first day freshman year to – winning the nationals as a true freshman? Well, uh, first off, we had a really good room. Uh, I mean, it, it would be interesting for you to talk to Chris Barnes, the two-time NCAA champion for us, and, and see how many takedowns he got against Mike Sheets and, and Kenny Monday, you know, the first couple of years he's in the room. And, and so that that's the kind of room it was so that, uh, you, if you wanted to be put in your place, there was somebody in the room that could put you in your place. And if there wasn't, there were two guys waiting to put you in your place, you know? And so uh, there was a constant evolution. And, and, and that, honestly, that's a balance too, right? I mean, how much, how much do you want somebody to wrestle uh, Kenny Monday in the room? And not daily. The day you're going to wrestle him, you better you better strap that headgear on really tight, you know, and you come in and you you get ready to go. And it's an all day thing and a night before thing. You don't you don't all of a sudden at three o'clock for a three thirty practice say, you know, I think I'm a wrestle Kenny today. <laughs> that's not a that's not a good thing to do. You know, you better be thinking ahead of time on what you eat and what your warm up is and what your preparation is and. And really, and so Pat had those, he had those opportunities in those days that he could challenge himself uh, at any given time on any given day. And, and as a coach, you, you watch that too, because there's certain days you, you separate them or you, you change it up a little bit on, on who he's going to compete against that day, even in practice. So it's a constant, constant work, constant progress. And, constant growth and, and preparation, you know? When you mentioned Chris Barnes, 
when I was interviewing Pat, he actually said, you know, after he lost to Russell in the two, the two matches, he came back and started to really take off. But, you know, Chris Barnes might score 30 takedowns on him in a single practice, but Pat might get one. And Pat hung on to that and built confidence from that. Yeah. Well, first off, the, the size difference was considerable, but their skill sets were so much alike in terms of uh, heavy hips, uh, high crotch, duck, slick. I mean, Chris Barnes, he was slick, slick, big guy. And uh, so, uh, but boy, he had those great huge hips, you know. I can't emphasize that enough when you think about, you know, what a skill set it takes to be really, really elite. And, and they had that. But, but yeah, no, that's, Pat's a freshman. He's competing against uh, a national champion. That's a 177 pounder and Pat's a 158 pounder. And, uh, and old Chris, he could, he could put it on you too. You know, he was, he was really good. And, you know, Chuck Barbie was in the room. And Jim, they, Shields they, they were, is, Jim Shields is adamant that Todd Chesbrough got the best of Pat most times as well. Like they would really go hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. Todd was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> pretty technically sound. Uh, lots. You know what? There was a lot of pressure on Todd and there was a lot of pressure on Pat. And uh, honestly, I looked at that as, uh, hey, let's get back to doing what we do and having fun doing it. I mean, we can work hard. Well, we can have fun doing it too. And that's, that, that was my main thing in that room was to try to get those guys to, uh, hey, let's get back to wrestling for the reasons that you wrestle. And you love that part of it. But uh, let's take some of that pressure off and let's just get ready to wrestle. I'll, I'll get you in shape. You're going to get in shape if you do the things we tell you to do and compete the way you can compete in the room. And, and yeah. That's why Pat may not get a lot of takedowns on Chris Barnes, but he got back up and got in the arena and, and Chris wasn't about to just give him a takedown. I mean, yeah. it's, you're going to have to, you're going to have to earn it in the room. And, uh, but at the same time afterwards, it's okay to say, Hey, boy, you sure got crushed today. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do about tomorrow? You know, what are, what do you think? Maybe you circle the other way. <laughs> Maybe you can control his lead hand. You know, if you do that, you're going to shut him down a little bit. Let's just shut him down a little bit. Don't give him so many, you know? And, and like, so that that's the back and forth. That's the ebb and flow of that season. And, you know, going into the nationals in 1990, Pat was the number one seed, but he was still 0-2 against Russell. So I, I kind of feel like Russell got, you know, I know he's a D2 guy, so that doesn't always pan out in the seedings, but, you know, that had to be in Pat's mind a little bit um, going into that semifinal match against Russell. Well, sure. I mean, but again, it's the preparation and the, uh, the confidence that you get over the course of a season that allows you to do that. But if, if you're going to think that Pat wasn't nervous, that's uh, I mean, he may tell you he wasn't nervous, but he knew, he knew the situation, the scenario. And, um, but, he was ready to wrestle. The end. Of, you always go at the end of the year and you work backwards. Pat was a lot better in March than he was in December. 
he was a lot better. And all those beatdowns in the room with Chris Barnes or Mike Sheets or Kenny Monday, uh, other people don't get that. You don't get tested like that on a daily basis. And when you get in those rooms like that, it's, I've tried to tell elite athletes, you know, you got to get out of your room. You got to get out of your room every six weeks at minimum to test yourself. Go. I mean, if you wrestle the same three guys every day for weeks and you get to where you beat them, they get to where they don't compete as hard. You got to get out and test yourself on a regular basis. Well, I'm telling you, Pat was able to be tested on a daily basis from, you know, from when he got in the room until the NCAA semifinals and on. Yeah, that, that schedule, that training, all those things that add to that, uh, that edge. And that's what elite programs do. You know, you got to have the, got to have the training partners and you got to have the schedule. And if you don't have the training partners, you can't be successful on the schedule. And it takes a combination of the two. And then probably the third thing is the coaching. It's, that's the third thing, you know. And, uh, and again, not rocket science, you know. Well, how did you get beat? Fix it. Right. And, and on a daily basis, that's what it was for Pat. And so was he prepared? Absolutely, he is prepared. And the, the, the room and the schedule and the coaching and the history it all, all came together. And how rare was it back then for a true freshman to win the nationals? Well, I don't think it had happened very much. Maybe one or two times, you know, maybe three times. I, I don't even know the history of it, but uh, there were a lot of things, you know, the red shirts, uh, freshmen couldn't compete as freshmen. Sometimes there were a lot of great wrestlers and, uh, but Think how hard it's been. I mean, you have Kel Sanderson and Logan and Dake. I mean, it's not a room full of people, is it? Has <laughs> been a four-time champion. I mean, that's a tough feat. I mean, just think about being sick one day or one one time or you know whatever the issue is. Your preparation wasn't exactly like it should have been. You're, there's so many variables that could could take a guy out or not. Maybe not take him out, but he's not 100%. I mean, you see it. You see it all the time with, with really, really good guys. You know, whatever it is. Uh, you got tired, you know. You stayed up too late. You, you got up too early to go do uh, media stuff. You, you should have been thinking about your rest and your preparation. Get a put all everything else away until after, till after, <laughs> not before, after. And, and we did a good job of, of well, doing and that. Especially when you, that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm just going to say that's what we did in terms of his preparation, in terms of keeping him away from all the other, the media that, you know, and he's still going to have it. You know, there's somebody coming up to him and and hey, good luck, man. I know you haven't beaten him, but <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you don't want to hear that. Let's keep him away. Let's keep him away a little bit. Yeah. And that was before, and that was his first title. And so the pressure really starts piling on after that. Um, 
and I know you had left shortly after that, but um, you know, how soon do you think the talk of, oh crap, Pat could be the first to win four started after he won that first one? Like right after he won the first one. <laughs> like, holy cow, this guy could be the first four-time national champion because you've got to win the first one before number two comes around, before number three comes around, before number four comes around. And just think about that over the course of time. And then, of course, uh, the sanctions came in, so he had another year in there with his preparation and the, and the nervousness of it all. And, the, and, and, and everybody else is getting better. There's not, they're not sleeping. Somebody's out there wanting to take that title away. Somebody else wants to be a national champion. Sean Bormet, I guarantee you, he went into that match. He wanted to win. <laughs> I know Sean, and uh, I guarantee you, he was he was geared up. He was yeah. ready to win. And uh, but that's the thing: preparation and. Uh, the room and the, the schedule, everything that gets you prepared for the, for the big stage. Yeah. You think about the guys Pat had to go through Dan Russell, um, Tom Ryan, maybe one of the best finals matches that I can remember Ray Miller. Um, and then the guy from Wisconsin, whose name's escaping me right now, Denzel, Matt, uh, he's Demeray. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, no, he was, he is a good one too. I mean, good guy. Yeah. Gosh, I forgot about Matt. He is a good man. He, uh, he's incredible. And then, I mean, Pat's senior year, he had Joe Williams who went on to be one of the greats. He took a seventh at that bracket loaded, you know, just loaded. Yeah. Yeah. How would you compare the, uh, and I know we're winding down, not so much about John and Pat, but you know, you've been at how many Olympics did you say you've been at? Four Olympics. And you know, Four. how many NCAs? Who knows, right? A lot. <laughs> How yeah. would you compare the environment and buildup of an Olympics versus an NCA tournament? Wow, that's a that's a good question because it's all relative. Uh, it's it's where you're at, what your goal is. Again, uh, in this great sport of wrestling, yeah, I'm going to tell this to all the athletes out there again. I've told many, uh, too many of them think they're going to start on sep September and get ready for March. And you got to reverse, you got to reverse all that. The NCAA athlete has to go to March and work backwards in, in your preparation on where you have to hit your peaks, where you have to hit your timing, what you have to do to get better. And there's constant change, constant. It has to be uh, uh, evolution in terms of, you know, you can always find the problems. You can always find them. When you wrestle a tough guy, you're going to find a, you know, it didn't all go great, even if you won. Yeah, I mean, there's, how did he score on you? How did he control the tie-up? What did you do? How can I get better? What can I do to be a little bit better <clears throat> the next time I wrestle this guy versus how I perform this time? And so, gosh, it's just a, I mean, what a sport in terms of, in terms of constant evolution and solving problems. And oh gosh, I, I even think back to, uh, you know, my days at the Naval Academy, you know, where maybe you don't have 
a three or four time state champion. You got a one time state champion. He's going to wrestle a four time state champion. That's a two time returning all America in your schedule. And you're, you know, you know, you're going to have to wrestle him three times over the course of the year. And your first time you close that gap, right? I mean, just look at it. You, you close the gap. You go, wow, you got beat by 10. Then you got beat by five. And I guarantee you, you wrestle him the third time, that guy's thinking, you know, this guy's, he's getting a little tougher here. And then all of a sudden, may, maybe you win 5-4, or maybe you lose 5-4, but that's the progression. I don't care what your skill level is or what your skill set is or the preparation in terms of, get, you know, getting ready for your toughest matches. It's a, it's a process. And and so whether it's the Olympics or it's the NCAAs or it's the world championships, I mean, a lot of people can say the world championships are harder because you don't have to qualify and you may have to wrestle more guys and there's more tougher guys. But I promise you this, your toughest guys are tougher in the Olympic year than they are in the world year. Bar none, the whole world gets better prepared for every fourth year. If you don't believe that, you just look at the Russian system and who they have the first year after the Olympics, the second year, the third year, and the fourth year. That whole process is to get the best guy that they have ready for that fourth year, uh, everything. And I didn't know that when I first started either, but, but that's the way it is. You better be ready on that that Olympic stage. And you talk about the stakes being high and I'm getting excited just hearing you talk about it. You know, an Olympic gold medal is, uh, is obviously a tremendous feat. And for people listening to this documentary, when it comes out in January, who maybe aren't super familiar with the freestyle scene and the international scene, um, you know, what does it mean for, for one of these Eastern European guys to bring home an Olympic gold medal to their country and to their family? Well, that's their first off. That's, that's a way out. That would be their professional sports, their NBA star. They're the person that can uh, win an Olympic medal and become a national hero. And they do become national heroes. And uh, I've seen it in Iran to Russia to Japan. It doesn't make any difference when you win that Olympic gold. Uh, that puts you on a pedestal and, and you are a national hero at that point. And so financially, um, I would say socially, but it, it, I mean, country's pride is a huge thing. It is. Uh, unfortunately, our society right now isn't focused like it should be, but it should be one country and, and one gold medal and one effort uh, by the entire country to, to be the best. And, and so those other countries, it's a way out. I, I've seen it. Uh, I've, I've been to Vladikovkaz and watched little kids, elementary school kids come in before school and go through a practice with their senior coaches. Then the seniors come in after that. And then after school's out, I see the little kids come back in before the senior practice with the senior coaches doing the same <laughs> drills, the same techniques, the same, it's the same. And then the seniors come in and they do their training 
and those personal coaches, it's a, it's a day for them. They're not, they're not drinking as much coffee as we are in between sets, you know, <laughs> they, they get those little kids in and they're going to work. They are going to work. And, and it's, uh, it's different when it's the national sport. Like you talk about Dagestan or Osetia, you know, the Osatians, they love their, their fighters, their wrestlers. Yes. And, and, you know, that's the, that's the pride of the community and the region. And, and, uh, it's, it's pretty exciting to actually see and to know some of those guys. So it's, it's exciting. Super exciting. Last two questions for you. This is a quick one. I just want to know since 92 is your first Olympics, you know, what jumps out to you when, when someone says Olympic village or someone says Barcelona, you know, what comes to mind for you from, from that first experience for you? I've got to be honest with you that that was Barcelona was the funnest Olympics for me. <laughs> and here's why I was an assistant coach. I was an assistant coach. So I had this list of things that I had to get done and get prepared for. And I did it to the fullest and the best of my ability. But when I could put that list away and go see another event or go into the village and hang out with the lead athletes from all over the world and, it's it was way different than when you're in charge of all the other athletes and trying to keep them not to do the things I did in Barcelona, right? Let's focus because freestyle wrestling, unfortunately, is the last event every Olympics. Those athletes never get to really enjoy the games. And the ones that try to enjoy it, they don't fare as well as they should have. That's, that's the bottom line because they're too caught up into the hype and they should be getting ready for weigh-ins their competition everything's taken away don't it, it wasn't good to hang out in the village with athletes that were done competing it just wasn't and so uh, it's still about you know what was your goal let's accomplish goal if the goal was to get inside the olympic village and be around olympic athletes and probably you're not going to fare so well on the stage. You know, it's all about performing on the stage, letting everything else take care of itself after in wrestling. Yeah. It's the last, last sport every day. Last day of the Olympics. Really? Free, I didn't know free, that. Freestyle wrestling last week. Yep. Wow. Yep. As a matter of fact, I think guys can be competing at, four o'clock in the afternoon, the last day of the Olympics before opening ceremony or closing ceremonies that night. So there's a lot of, a lot of work to be done that last day. Wow. Last question. The name of the podcast is wrestling changed my life. Naturally want to ask you, Mr. Burnett, how has wrestling shaped and molded your life? Well, re wrestling for me <clears throat> has just been uh, such a blessing. I mean, I can't, you can't even start to imagine uh, the people that I've met, the places that I've been. Um, I filled up more passports. So I've been all over the world. And what you find is the things that drive people as a family and a country, they're the same everywhere. People are the same. Now, I think politicians get in the way a lot of times in the, in the course of the world, but you you meet the wrestling community all over the world and and it's the same 
you care about your family, you care about taking care of your family, you get up, you go to work, you take care of your kids, you, you, and wrestling taught me that. It, it taught me that life, life is just not that hard. Wrestling, that's hard. <laughs> day in and day out. But living, uh, yeah, living with faith, that's the key. Awesome. Gotta love it. Oh man, it's it's it. I like people like you who have an enthusiasm for the day. Like you, you seem like yeah. a guy. You wake up excited for every day. I I've got to say, I'm on this mission right now to get better as a golfer, and I am pathetic. <laughs> but but I work at it. I study video. I took lessons. I'm I'm getting better. But have I'm you gone still, to golf school yet? Uh, golf school. I have golf tech. You know. It's good because they video your lessons. You're, you can go back and get it. You download it. You have it all the time. You can go back and say, you know, why is that ball going in that direction? And you can figure it out. That's the key. So you're an obsessive person like the rest of us, huh? You're watching film. <laughs> you're, not a lot of people are having that kind of uh, level of detail. I love that. Yeah. I have to say, my wife gets a little, you know, you watch them golf again. You know, first off, golf's an expensive sport. You know, so I'm glad uh, my wife worked hard as an educator. <laughs> it's good. Awesome. Ryan, it's, it's been fun. Really it's fun. A, it's an honor, sir. Thank you very much for your time. I, I wish you nothing but the best. Hopefully we'll get to meet in person here if things ever go back to normal. Yeah, what a good job you do for the sport. Good job, Ryan. You Thank have you, a great sir. day. Appreciate it. You too. And all great things must come to an end. If you want to hear more from the podcast, Text Wrestle to 555-888. That's Wrestle to 555-888. You can also find us on Instagram, Wrestling Changed My Life, Twitter, Ryan underscore N underscore Warner, as well as our website, WrestlingChangedMyLife.com. Take care, y'all.